Amen. It's good to worship and sing. I'm enjoying our new music setup here. Thank you all for leading us like that. Thank you, Joey, for helping us sing together and in tune. I always say that I can sing well next to somebody else who knows how to sing because I just try to copy them. But thankful God has given us talent to lead us. Last week I started a what I thought would be a two-part series. It's looking like it's going to be longer than that on two destinations, hell or heaven. And we looked at hell last week. Uh, it was serious enough to where I wouldn't want to spend in a, more than one week just focused on the, the torments of hell, the, the fire, the darkness, the separation from God, the punishment. And we looked at, I think it was 11 points on describing what hell is and who would go there and, and how it's a, a broad path a broad gate. Many go there. And it's few that find the gate to eternal life. The path to eternal life. Well today I want to look at heaven. A much more joyful subject. When preachers are very serious preaching on hell. You will get people online making comments like. That pastor never smiles. You know he's got a real problem. No wonder he's preaching on hell. He never smiles. We really shouldn't smile about hell. But heaven. We should smile. We should be joyful. Uh, this is what we've been singing about. Because Christ forgave us, we get to spend eternity with God. We get to spend eternity with Christ. What is heaven? We don't think enough about it. We don't think enough about heaven. Uh, believers don't consider what heaven will be, but we ought to. You've heard it said sometimes that Christians are more heavenly minded than earthly good. I think that's what the world says about Christians who focus, maybe they think too much on God, too much on Christianity. I've never actually met a Christian that's too heavenly minded. That's a good thing. It might be funny to the world, but it's not true that we can be too heavenly minded. Christians who focus on heaven are extremely motivated to live for God's glory now, to live a holy life now. If you're a true follower of Christ, it's your final destination. It's where you're going to spend eternity. Why wouldn't you want to think about it more? Why wouldn't you want to ponder it, study it, consider it, talk about it? The Apostle Paul even says in Colossians 3 that set your mind on things above. He's talking about heaven. Set your mind on, on heaven. The things of heaven. Not the things that are on the earth. Because they're going to pass away. Worldly things are going to pass away. And we need to be more focused on heavenly things. But how do you set your mind on something that you have no clue about? You have to learn what those things are so that we can set our minds on them. And while we're not going to look today necessarily at the different virtues that we ought to have when we're heavenly minded, I, I do want to give you a description of what the Bible says heaven will be like. Unfortunately, if, if you ask many Christians in America today, their view of heaven comes from somewhere else other than the Bible. It comes from maybe a, a movie they watched about heaven or a book they read. Or many of these books that came out a few years ago, they're called Heaven Tourism Book, where somebody supposedly dies, they go to heaven, and they come back and get a lot of money for writing a book. 90 minutes in heaven. Heaven is for real. The boy who came back from heaven, which later the boy said that was his father making it up. And We don't need to get our views of heaven from those things. We need to get them from the Bible. We need to get them from the Bible. Jesus had a lot to say about heaven. The apostles had a lot to say about heaven. There's only four biblical writers other than Christ, of course, speaking in the, in the gospel accounts. But there's only four biblical writers who ever even saw a vision of heaven. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and of course we just read John's account in Revelation. And they barely spoke of what they saw. They just told us enough that God had said to write these things down so that we would get a glimpse, that we would get a view of heaven. If you wanted to know about heaven at any time in church history, you went to Scripture. They didn't go down to the Jerusalem bookshop and, and see who had written the most recent book on heaven tourism. Even of all the people raised from the dead in the Bible, not one of them gave any description of what happened when they were in the tomb like Lazarus. Or those saints who were raised when Jesus died on the cross. Those saints who were raised for a bit, of course, and then died a normal death. Lazarus was in the tomb four days. What did he tell us about that time? Nothing. God didn't want him to tell us anything. Paul said he saw the third heaven. He actually went and saw what heaven was like in a vision. And he said he wasn't permitted to speak about it. We don't need to read 
and see and watch silly things and fanciful tales to tell us about heaven. Let's just look to Scripture. Scripture has a lot to say. A lot to say. I came up with 12 points on heaven. And I started to write my notes out. And I got to number 6 and said, this is more than enough for one sermon. So we're going to look at the first six today. And uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at the next six next week. There's so much on heaven. I just don't feel like we should rush through it. There's so many poor views of heaven that we need to slow down and actually talk and look at some of these uh, different points that the Bible describes on heaven. Well, number one, the very first thing that you need to know about heaven is it's immediate upon the death of a believer. We talked last week about how hell is immediate upon the death of an unbeliever. It's instant. Well, opposite of that, of course, is that heaven is immediate upon the death of a believer. A believer is someone who's trusted in Christ for salvation. It's someone who's put all that they are and all that they own and all that they think in the arms of Christ to carry them to heaven. They've turned from their sin. They don't want to continue to live for themselves. They want to live for Christ. Well, when a believer dies, right now, if a believer was to die today, they would go immediately to heaven. They would be ushered into the arms of Christ in heaven. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ. Remember, Paul's in prison. He could be killed if the emperor decides. And he says, to live is Christ. To live is to serve Christ. And to die is gain. To die is gain. He's saying that if he was to die, that would be a great gain because he would go to see Christ right away. He knew. He knew he would see Christ if he was to be killed. Then when we talk about heaven right now, just like hell, there's really two stages. Remember in hell, there's where unbelievers' souls depart if they died now. And they go to a place of torment called Hades or just hell in English. And then later, there's the lake of fire. But when they get the resurrected bodies, they're thrown into the lake of fire. Well, it's the same with heaven, of course, but the opposite as far as joy and comfort and peace and rest. So we'll just call it intermediate heaven. This is what... Um, theologians call it the intermediate state or intermediate heaven. It's, it's where the soul goes of a believer when their body dies. Your soul goes to be with Christ. It goes to be with God in heaven. The soul does not sleep in the ground. It does not await the body. It, it has an existence. You, you as a soul have an existence when your body dies and that's an existence with Christ, with God the Father in heaven, a place called heaven. You remember that parable last week of Lazarus and the rich man? And it said that the, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So there the intermediate heavens called Abraham's bosom because the Jews could recognize that kind of name. They knew this was a place where saints who had followed God and were waiting on the Savior. When they died, they went to Abraham's bosom. And it said the rich man also died and was buried. We find out later he ends up in Hades, a place of torment. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and there was one of the thieves beside him believed in Christ, trusted in him. And Jesus turned and said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Not next week, not when I return, not when you get your new body, but today, the very day that you die, you'll be in heaven with Christ, he says. And even though it's not our final destination, it's much better than this life. Now we never should do things to get us there quicker, of course. That would be sin. But it is much better than this life. It is because we're with God. There's no sin. There's no pain. We're with God. We're in God's throne room where He reigns. Where all the saints who've died before us are. We, we have a great celebration there with them as we await the resurrected body. Jesus is there in the flesh. What would it be like if you're a believer? What would it be like to be with Christ right now in heaven? We can't imagine it. There's not a lot of descriptions of this intermediate heaven. The Bible doesn't say much. Even Paul went there and he was not permitted to speak. By the way, he said he went to the third heaven. Heaven in the Bible just means up there. So the first heaven... That's the atmosphere. That's the clouds. That's the sky. The second heaven, that's what we call outer space. That's where the stars are. The sun, the moon, the stars. And the third heaven is a place we can't see. 
We don't even know really how to explain where it is. If it's another dimension or, or somewhere so far out that we can't see with a telescope. But that's the third heaven Paul described. It's not some mystical place where there's different levels of heaven like the Mormons say. It's just the heaven described in the Bible. Now the souls of believers are there and they're resting. If you look in Revelation, for example, Revelation 14, verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They're blessed. They get to go to heaven and be with God. Yes, says the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Those who are in Christ and have done good deeds, they go. Of course, everyone in Christ goes to heaven, but those who've done good deeds will already start to receive some of their rewards there. And of course, all believers are rewarded by resting. There's no work. There's no labor. There's no persecution. Revelation 6, 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God. This is during the tribulation. People are getting killed. Christians are, are getting slain. And they were slain because they believed in Christ. They trusted in the Word of God. And because of the testimony, John says, which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice. Now notice, notice what they're saying in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. They're resting. They're resting. But it's not the final resting place. Because what are they doing? They're waiting. They're waiting. And they're, they're getting a little bit excited to get their new bodies. And they know that God has to avenge their death. He has to come and judge the earth. He has to bring all the judgments that he's going to bring upon the earth. And then they will get their new body. And then they will get to live upon the earth once again. And so it says that they're given a robe and they're told to rest a little while longer. So as wonderful as that is, as wonderful as it is to be with Christ, to be with God in heaven, it's not the final resting place. It's not the final destination. That's just between the time you die and the time that Christ returns to resurrect your body. So then let's move to number two from that. You go to heaven to be with God. But what is this about eternal life? Is eternal life just, just living as a soul on a cloud somewhere that we can't even explain where it is? Worshiping God? That would be great. But is that what God intended? Jesus says over and over that those who trust in Him, those who follow Him will have eternal life. Life. Yes, the soul is alive. But the body is part of us as well. It's part of life. You know, one of the most common views I think that people have when you ask them about heaven is what we just described. The heaven now. Abraham's bosom. The, the place where God is now. And that's wonderful. But the Bible says a lot more about what happens after the resurrection. And I think most Christians think that heaven's just a spiritual place where your soul goes. And it kind of sits on a cloud. Maybe you play a round of golf every once in a while. You get out your harp. You know, you get out your harp and you, you play some strings on the harp to God and you just sing to Him. And you play golf and the golf ball goes through the clouds and there's all these cartoons and advertisements and movies that picture that. And the idea there is that the physical is bad. The earth is sinful. Of course, we know it is now. And the body's sinful, which there's some truth to that. Our, our flesh is sinful right now. But that view goes on to say that all physical matter is sinful and evil and that God can't redeem it. A view that has more to do with Greek philosophy, really Plato, than anything, that, that you have to get away from your body. You have to get free from your body. To live a perfect, holy existence. That's a Platonic view. That's a Greek philosophical view. In fact, Randy Alcorn, he's written a book on heaven. If you haven't read it, I recommend that you read it. Not, not that everything in there is exactly from Scripture because he does take some literary license at times, but it's a good book to help your mind get around 
what heaven would be like according to Scripture. And he has this appendix on what he calls Christoplatonism. It's Christianity mixed with pagan philosophy. Christo, Christianity, Platonism. And he says that most Christians today, or people who call themselves Christians, they, they take views of Plato and they sort of mix it with Christianity. He says that that view has poisoned Christianity and blunted its distinct differences from Eastern religions. He goes on to write that Satan, Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He only con- needs to convince us that heaven is a place of boring, unearthly existence. If we believe that lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. We can't really picture a, a bodiless experience. And, and most Americans then, who hold that view, have a pagan view of heaven. They just haven't been taught the scripture, if they're Christians. They haven't been taught what the views of heaven truly are in the Bible. In fact, that's why, by the way, pagans would burn the body. That's why they would burn the body in ancient times. Because they thought, you need to be separate from the body. And when your soul departs at death, they need to burn the body and everything that you own. That way, you would have no connection at all. But Jews and early Christians would bury the body. Not because it did anything special for the person who died. Because it symbolized the fact that God thought matter was important. That the physical was important. He was going to redeem it someday. And so you can see two views growing throughout history there. You have to ask, did did Christ give his body and soul for our salvation? If he gave his body for us, what does that mean for our bodies? Did he give his body so we could live sort of a disembodied existence forever? Is that what it means to have eternal life? Remember, he said that you'll have it to the full, an abundant life. Not a prosperous, wealthy, rich life now, but an abundant life forever, eternally. Was he resurrected in a physical body so that we would not have a redeemed body ourselves? Of course, the answer is no. Of course, he was the first fruits. He was the one who paved the way, who showed us what exactly would happen when we have a resurrected body. So this intermediate heaven, as great as it is, it's not our final destination. We are meant to have a real body. That's what it means to be human. Angels don't have a body. They're angels. They're spirits. We have a spirit and a body. We are human. Soul, spirit, same thing. And your human body. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. So there will be a resurrection. There will be a resurrection. God meant man to be Soul and body. Remember in Genesis he said that he formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. We only die now and go to heaven because we're waiting. We're waiting for Christ to come back to the earth. We're waiting for God to reign upon the earth. This will happen, I believe, at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Christians who've already died will rise first. Then we who are alive, Paul says, and remain, will be caught up. The Greek word is snatched up. Snatched up together with them, those who've already risen, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Up there, we're going to get our bodies and, and, and meet him once again in the cloud. If you're alive when he does that, then you go straight there with your new body, of course, in the process. If you're already dead, then your soul's in heaven and it gets reunited with the resurrected body and we all meet together with Christ in the air. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, Romans 8.23 says that Christ is the first fruits of the Spirit. And that we're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. If we were to go to 1 Corinthians 15, it says in a twinkling of an eye, when the trumpet sounds, we'll be raised. We'll be getting an imperishable body. Not a perishable body. Not one that will decay. Not one that will rot away. But an imperishable one. One that never dies. Then, of course, there's seven years of tribulation. Many will die. We just read about that in in some passages in Revelation 14, Revelation 6, where people are getting killed and they're in heaven and they want to, of course, be raised and re-resurrected. Then Christ will return. He will return to the earth. 
All those who died in the tribulation will be raised. All the Old Testament saints will be raised. They'll reign with him for a thousand years. For a thousand years upon the earth. Then it says in Revelation 20, 4 through 5. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. He's talking about those who've been raised. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. And because of the word of God. Those who had been killed during this great tribulation. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. One thousand years. We take that literally here. We think it truly is one thousand years that they reign. All the Old Testament saints. Everybody who's saved, if we want to use that term, will get their bodies for the millennial kingdom. Daniel 12 even speaks to that. Daniel 12 too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Daniel's already been describing what's going to happen in the end times. The very end of his book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then Jesus says in John 5, 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to resurrection of life. Who are those who did the good deeds? Not those who earned their salvation, but those who trusted in Christ. And they showed it through producing fruit. They're going to get eternal life. They're going to get a thousand years with Christ, but that's still just the beginning. Isn't that wonderful, all that God has in mind for us? That if we die now, we get to go and be with Him. Then we get a resurrected body. Then we get to reign for a thousand years, and there's even more. Number three, a restored universe. Heaven is about a restoration. The final heaven, the ultimate eternal state, is about God restoring all things. Better even than the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was good. But man was able to sin. Heaven will be a place, of course, where we're not able to sin. And all things will have been perfected and restored. You read earlier in Revelation 21, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. Now the Bible has a lot to say about this. We're going to spend actually the next few points sort of unwrapping what this means. What does it mean that the old has passed away and new things have come? What does that actually mean? There's so much in the Bible about that. The heaven we would go to now if we died, there's a little bit in Scripture about that. To give us hope, to give us a promise to look forward to. The eternal New earth has so much in the Bible. We can't even tap it all right now. We're going to look at it as much as we can. Second Peter 3.13. Peter writes, According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking for. That's, that should be in our mind when we talk about heaven. Yes, there's a, a temporary waiting place for our soul, but we're looking forward to the new earth, a new body, a new earth to run upon, to work upon, to glorify the Lord. The millennial kingdom's been completed. The great white throne judgment has occurred. Satan has been thrown into the lake of fire. There's no more Satan. There's no more unbelievers. They've been thrown in with him because they wouldn't repent and trust in God even though the sky was falling down upon them. They still wanted to rebel. And now all things will be restored. If you've already turned to 2 Peter, we're going to look at another passage there. I just quoted for you 3.13, where we as believers are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. But before that, before the new heavens and the new earth, God's going to remake things. And we don't get a lot of description of what exactly he's doing there, except for 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord, and Peter just uses that phrase, day of the Lord, to just summarize all that God is doing, really, from, from the time Christ returns until after the kingdom, that's the day of the Lord. Even the tribulation, I think, he's including in this idea of the day of the Lord. He said it will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. 
God's doing a reshaping. God's doing a remaking here. And the earth and its works will be burned up. He goes on to say in verse 12, The heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. God's heating things up upon the earth to remake something, to restore the earth. And that's the only verse that tells us what the process might be like. In Romans 8.21, Paul writes that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. The creation is enslaved to corruption because man's sin, diseases, viruses, animals killing humans, animals killing animals, natural disasters, death, all of these things occurred because of the fall. And it says that he's going to set creation free, Paul says. It's no longer going to be enslaved to corruption. He even goes on in Romans 8 to say that creation groans. He personifies it. Creation is waiting and groaning. That's what John means in Revelation 21, verse 5. Behold, God says, I'm making all things new. God tells John to write that. Behold, I'm making all things new. Everything will be new. New bodies, new earth, new sky. New outer space, stars. If there's even a sun and a moon, it will be new. We don't get all the details, but wow, we get so much. Colossians 1, it goes on to say, All things, all things, material and immaterial, will be reconciled to God. That doesn't mean everyone will be saved. What that means is that all things that exist at that time will be reconciled to God. The creation itself. And Jesus just refers to it in Matthew 19 as the regeneration of the cosmos. The being born again. That's what regeneration means. When a Christian gets saved, they're born again. They have a new heart. You're born the first time, you get saved. You're born a second time, you're born again. And God's going to make the earth born again. I don't know if that means He's going to destroy every single atom and create all the way from scratch. Or... I probably lean more towards he's going to take what's there and reshape it and remake it. Now there's going to be some differences. It is similar to our world, but there are going to be differences. There's no sea. We read about no sea in Revelation 21. Probably because seas separate mankind. And so sometimes people say, how are we all going to live on the new earth? Well, if there's no salt water, there's a lot of land that's open. We'll talk more about where we're going to live in a minute. There's probably going to be large bodies of water, lakes, a still, and and of course we're going to read about a river. There's going to be aquatic life, I think. Revelation 22, 5. There's not going to be any night, though. He says there in, in Revelation 22, no night. So that's a difference. That's a big difference. No darkness. Both symbolizing that, that God is going to be our light and that there's no darkness as far as sin is concerned. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. The animal kingdom is going to be restored. The animal kingdom is going to be restored. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. It's a great passage. You probably heard it. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with a young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. In other words, God is going to design it so that there's no meat eaters. And it's possible that that was even the case in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But certainly it's going to be the case on the new earth. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra. I'm not going to let my nursing child do that now. But in that place... The animals won't harm humans. There's no poisonous snakes. So some of you who have snake issues are going to love snakes then probably, right? The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. There's not going to be any animals that hurt or destroy God's people. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So just like today, the waters are all around the earth. And that day, everything 
animal even, is going to obey exactly what the Lord wants it to do. There's no rebellion. There's no corruption. There's going to be peace amongst man and man, man and animal. Also in Isaiah 65, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw. He says again, dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain. There's going to be a reversal. The serpent came into the garden. Satan disguised himself. The serpent was cursed. And now there's a reversal. The serpent won't even be feared. The new earth is going to be a real place. A real tangible planet. A place that we can walk on, talk on, celebrate on, eat, drink. Worship the Lord. Go up to the city and worship Him. Go out into the country and worship Him. How could it not be a place that's real? A place with real space and time. People say, you know, there's no time in heaven. There's, there's no time in eternity. Well, first of all, it's eternity, which means it's stretching into forever and ever, which indicates time. But there are verses that indicate there's time in heaven. Even right now in heaven, there's time. It's kind of hard for us to imagine the special place where God has His throne, that there is time. But remember in Revelation 6, where He tells them, wait a little longer. That's an indication of time. There's some time happening there, and they need to wait a little longer. Revelation 7, 15, the martyrs who come out of the great tribulation serve Him day and night in His temple in heaven. There's day and night? How does, how does that work? in heaven right now. We don't know, but there's some sort of time going forward. And I think the best verse is Revelation 8.1. Things were so bad upon the earth. So, so much power of God being displayed in the great tribulation. It says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I wonder who's measuring that. Has an angel got his angel watch there? Half an hour of silence to tell John to write that down. But there's time. There's time. There's space right now in heaven. Time and space, of course, is going to be on the new earth. Now, number four, as we're talking about the restored earth, number four, there's going to be a glorious city upon that earth. God's providing a place for us to live as believers. Something you ought to be excited about. As we look at our description of heaven here, it's not just sitting on the cloud, playing a song and playing golf occasionally. Sort of calling up your grandpa on the cloud over there and talking to him. There's a real earth. And look at this city. A glorious city. A celestial city. A city that's coming down from heaven. It's already been made. And it's going to come down from heaven to the earth. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't mean that our soul's going to go there forever. He says our citizenship's in heaven. Meaning that's who owns us. That's who we're a citizen of. We serve God. And when we die, we go to be with Him. And then when He comes to the earth and sets up His holy city, we're going to be there. That's our country. That's our city. Hebrews 11.10 tells us that the father of the faith, Abraham. I bet you haven't thought of this. Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham, that pagan that was called and saved by God, he already had in mind some city that God was going to bring. Yeah, that's what it says. He was looking for that city. It would never be shaken, that city. It had foundations built by God. Hebrews 13, verse 14. Right now, believers, it says, do not have a lasting city. Now you can live in a city that could be destroyed. Destroyed by war, destroyed by natural disasters. Locked down by plagues. But we don't have a lasting city now, but we are seeking the city which is to come. When you think of heaven, you ought to think of a city. Not a dusty, smog-filled, dirty city, but a glorious city. A, a glorious city. The new Jerusalem. Revelation 21.2. The new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new earth. The new earth is not just New Jerusalem, but it is huge. And it is the capital city. It's where Christ will reign from. And somehow it's connected to the current Jerusalem as far as the name. Of course, it's connected. 
what kind of implications that has to Israel, to the Jewish nation, in the Old Testament, we can't say for certain. But God does call it the new Jerusalem. Let's go to Revelation 21 again. We examine that description of the city. If you don't think this is glorious, this is where people get the streets of gold. That's one thing that modern American uh, Christianity has gotten right. There are going to be streets of gold. It's coming down upon the earth. So let's pick up in uh, Revelation 21, verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. So there's a, there's a high mountain and it says, He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God. So as this city comes down, you can already see God's glory in it, around it. God is in the city. God is coming down. Her brilliance, the city, was, was like a very costly stone. A stone of crystal clear jasper. A glorious jewel coming out of the sky. Then he goes on to describe the gates. They have angels around them. There's 12 gates. Names are written on them. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Israel's not completely, of course, forgotten. There were three gates on the east. And he goes on to say three gates on each side of this square. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And the 12 apostles' names are on them. What a wonderful city that's, that's coming down. A, a beautiful city. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 2.9. Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man. That's what God has prepared. That's all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Now we're just getting started with this description. When we start to really consider this city, I hope you want to live there. I hope you look forward to living there. Now many people will look at this and say it's just figurative. It's just describing heaven in the clouds right now. Or it's just describing how wonderful Christ is. Christ is wonderful, but this is a description of the new city that's coming. This is not allegorical. This is not figurative. This is a real city, and he even gives the dimensions. Look at that. In verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as the width. So there's a square shape. That's the footprint. And the angel measures the city and tells John. Now in Greek it's stadia. But your translation has already translated it for us into miles. What does it say there? 1,500 miles. One side of this square is 1,500 miles. That's not allegorical. That, that's real. That's a real measurement. And he goes on to say its length and width and height are equal. 1,500 miles. That's how big the city is. That, that's the size of a city that would reach from Canada to Mexico and then from the Appalachian Mountains to the California border. So half the United States, basically, is the footprint of this city. It makes you wonder how the earth can even hold up a city because then it's going to expand 1,500 miles up from the earth because the height is the same as the width and length. Now some have proposed that this is a cube because the Holy of Holies in the temple was a perfect cube. In fact, in ancient times, everyone thought that a God existed in a, a perfect cube. And even pagans had these little temples built like that. Others have said, no, this is a large garden city in the shape of a square, but it goes up this mountain that John's placed on. And the mountain is 1,500 miles high, Mount Zion. And it will be sort of a terraced garden city going down all sides of that mountain from the top down with, with Christ at the top on His throne and coming down 750 miles each direction from the top of that temple. Whatever it is, it's going to be glorious. And John just gives us a number here to help us imagine. This is not anywhere close to any city today. The biggest city in the world is not anywhere close to 1,500 miles in its length and its width. And then there's walls. We don't even need walls in heaven, and yet here are walls to show that, that God holds us fast, that God secures us and comforts us. But there's nothing to attack, so the gates stay open. But it's to show how strong God is. Look at verse 17. 
He measured its wall 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. We don't know if this is the height of the wall or the width of the wall, but either way, 72 yards, three-fourths of a football field, is a large wall. Just to show God's glory as we walk through the gates of this wall. We pick up in verse 19. Foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. He lists all these stones. The gate itself is one huge pearl that there's a doorway cut in to go through. One huge pearl. It's got beauty to it. There's astonishing beauty. There's incredible beauty to this city. Let's skip down to verse 22. I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Can you imagine how bright that's going to be? We just recently got a telescope. And you can't even, you can't even look at the moon through that telescope. The moon is so bright. You certainly can't look at the sun with your own eyes right now. It would burn your eyes. But somehow we're going to see the glory of God shining through this city. All over the place. And it's going to have gold streets, so it's just going to reflect the light and the glory of God everywhere. But with our resurrected bodies, we can behold that. We can tolerate that and we'll love it. The nations will walk by its light, the light of the city. It's going to light up the whole earth. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, there will be no light, no night there. It's going to be so bright, there is no darkness, there's no night. I don't know if we're going to sleep or not. Maybe. And nothing unclean can enter it. There's no sin. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And you're going to have a house there. Even if you work outside the city, we'll talk about that next week. Even if you have a, a nice little place that you're overseeing somewhere on the earth, I think all believers will have a place to live when they come to the new Jerusalem. Because Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. He's going to come again, grab his people, take them with him back to heaven, and then all of that's coming down to the earth. Isaiah 65 says they will build houses and inhabit them. Last two chapters of Isaiah talking about the new earth. They'll build houses and inhabit them. There's also a, a river that flows from the city. It's got the trees of life on each side. What a glorious place. A glorious city. Number five. In that city, what's the, the pinnacle of the city? That we'll be in the presence of Christ. That we'll be in the presence of Christ. Sometimes people think about heaven and they don't think about Jesus. Or they don't want to think about Jesus. But he'll be there. We'll be with Christ. Whether we die and go to heaven now, or we're there when it comes down upon the earth and we get resurrected, We'll go to be with Christ. Death brings us, of course, immediately into the presence of Christ. Because to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord is what Paul says death is all about. And we'll forever be with Christ. We get our resurrected bodies, we'll be there. We want to be in the presence of Christ. Paul certainly did. He was always talking about it. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ which is very much better. I could stay Philippians and I could minister to all the churches. That'd be great. I'm serving the Lord. But to depart and be with Christ is very much better. We can't even translate that in English. Very much better. Doesn't make for a very good grammar. It's the highest superlative in Greek. Nothing's greater, he's saying, than being with Christ. We're going to be with Christ forever and ever. In this eternal city on the new earth. We'll dwell with Him in bodily form. He'll be there in bodily form. We can touch Him. We can see Him. We can behold Him face to face. The first time that we were able to walk upon the earth as humans was in the Garden of Eden. And it says that God walked with Adam every day. Every day God walked with Adam. And that hasn't happened since then. Yes, Christ walked upon the earth, but people didn't recognize him. They didn't want to follow him. And even then he had a body that, that could die. Now he's got a resurrected body and we're going to see him in his full glory. 
Are we going to talk with him and walk with him? John says he saw no temple. The God Almighty is the temple. And the Lamb, that's Jesus, are its temple. They're going to shine their glory everywhere. Revelation 22, 3, there'll be no curse any longer. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. You think of Moses. Remember Moses on the mountain? He wants to see a glimpse of God. I think what he ends up seeing is just a pre-incarnate Christ walking by. But it says that he just saw the back of God's glory. And his face shone for days. The people of Israel said, put something over your face. It's too bright. It scares us. Paul knew that seeing Christ would be ultimate gain. The glory of God being seen changes everything. Everything. To think about God's glory changes everything in your life. You know who saw that glory for just a second? Just a few minutes maybe? It was those three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Christ's glory just for a little bit. And they wanted to camp out there, didn't they? Remember Peter? He says, I just want to camp out here. Let's set up a tent and stay here. Then God sort of booms his voice at him and says, you do what my son says. And he says, let's get back to work. Just a glimpse. That's not what the world means when they talk about heaven, no. We've got to get this out of our mind that, that heaven's a place where we get everything we want and get to see everyone we want, but not any excitement about seeing Christ. I like what John Piper has to say. He says, if you could have heaven. He's asking a question or a hypothetical here. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all your friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict and no natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ was not there? If you had everything you ever wanted, your own little paradise, but Christ wasn't there, could you be satisfied? And the Christian's got to say no, because all that doesn't matter without Christ. We're going to be with him forever and ever. You should want to be with him. Are you a Christian if you don't want to be with Christ? Lastly, because we're in a resurrected body, because we're with Christ in the new glorious city on the new earth, There will be perfect holiness. Perfect holiness. This ought to excite you too. If this doesn't excite you, I wonder if you're struggling with sin like you ought to be. Perfect holiness. This means free from sin. Number six, you're going to have perfect holiness free from sin. We're not completely free from the struggles of the flesh right now. We're free as Christians from the slavery and the bondage. We don't have to sin. It's a choice. Before, when we were unbelievers, we didn't even know we were sinning. We didn't even care we were sinning. You get saved, you're you're free. The chains have been broken, but sometimes you want to dive back in. You want to get a little dirty once again. Not in heaven. The struggle's over. I love how John MacArthur always says, I'm ready for heaven because I'm tired of sin. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. For all time will be perfected. For all time. No more struggles with sin. No more sin. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? The purpose. So that he might sanctify her. That's make the church holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. What's the purpose of that? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now we're striving for holiness now, but this doesn't describe us yet. The presentation's going to happen when Christ returns. All the resurrected saints will be presented to Christ without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Completely holy. Everything you do will please God. You won't have to even wonder Is that pleasing to God? It's not possible to do anything that's not pleasing to God in this eternal heaven on the new earth. It's not possible. The old order of things has passed away. Every defilement of body and spirit, the Bible says, has gone. Nothing unclean can come into the new city. 
No people who practice sin will be even allowed there. They'll be in the lake of fire. It's called a holy city. It's a place where righteousness dwells. If you're fighting sin every day, if sin puts you on your knees and makes you tear up, and you ought to long for this, perfect holiness. That's why Jesus says the righteousness will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. All the righteous people will shine forth with their holiness. All those sins you're struggling with right now will be gone. What a great day. We, we can't go a day without sin. We're going to go eternity without sin. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? It's wonderful. We can't even imagine all. All we can take is the scripture that's there and consider what it says and know that there's even more to discover beyond that. And I look forward to doing that in heaven. I'll close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher. He said, one hour with Christ, one hour with Christ in glory will more than make up for a weary lifetime of service, of suffering, of poverty, of persecution. I have often tried to imagine what the first five minutes with Jesus Christ in heaven will be. But I have in vain sought to picture the novelty and freshness of that wondrous time when the soul filled with amazement will exclaim, the half has never been told me. All that we've tried to experience here in these passages as we've learned and looked at heaven will just seem like a small thing compared to all that we're going to experience in heaven. Do you want to be there? Want to go there? Christ is the only way. He's the only way. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him. Walk with Him. Take up your cross and follow Him. You'll get to experience all of these yourself. God, we do bow before you and ask that you would give us more thoughts of heaven in our daily life. That we would want to be there someday. That we would look forward to it. That we had eternity stamped on our eyeballs as Jonathan Edwards said. As we walk through our life, we would consider it. We get to be with Christ. We get to be with you, Father. The Spirit will be there. The triune God will be there. So I pray, Lord, that we might desire it. That everyone here would want to be in heaven. Not because they were born in America. Not because their parents are Christians. Because they want to be with Christ and they love Him. Make that a reality in our church. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.